Hey, good to be with you guys. Good morning. Hope that you had a good week. Uh, I had an interesting week. Last uh, Saturday, boy, I started feeling like I was coming down with something. You know, you just sort of feel like something's not right here. And by Tuesday, I had like full-on bronchitis. And I'm like, I don't know how this is going to go. You know, getting ready for the weekend, your voice and your cough, your lungs and everything. But uh, it just, you know, that song when we sang, the goodness of God runs after us. It's like just through a variety of circumstances, I got all that I needed. I got great rest. And, and uh, for the most part, I'm ready to go. If there's a problem with the message, you know, we'll just go with that. I'll just blame it on that. Um, but God is good to us. So David's not here. He's coming back from New York. His son, Brent, gave him tickets to see Manchester United against Arsenal in New York. Would you travel to New York to see a soccer game? I'm just asking. But David loves soccer. You guys know that. And so no distance is too far for him. And you know, the truth is, even today, I looked, into the, looked online to see what was the score of that game. I think that was the first time in my entire life I've ever checked a soccer score game. Even then, I didn't understand it. It said two to nothing, but then it said five to three and penalty kicks. What does that mean? What's this? I don't know. But um, when somebody you care about and love cares about something that much, you try to at least be able to speak the language. So that's what I was doing. So anyway, he'll be back next week, and we'll uh, finish off this series one-on-one. Um, -on -one. And so it's been a good series. These are like conversations that Jesus has had with people, pointed you know, face-to-face -face conversations, not necessarily in private, but just really one-on-one -on -one conversations. And we've talked about Jesus in our past. He was speaking to the woman at the well. We talked about Jesus in our prayers, Jesus in our achievements. Um, Levi was talking about the rich young ruler. Last week, we talked about Jesus in our politics. And so today, we're going to talk about an entirely different topic. We're going to talk about our doubts, do you sometimes have doubts? You know, do you sometimes have anxious thoughts, nagging thoughts, nagging uncertain thoughts, doubts? Social commentators have said that we live in an age of anxiety, that we are a nation of worriers. And I believe that. I believe that. Um, I'm kind of a news junkie, I've said that before, and so I look at news a lot and all kinds of you know, feed, news feeds, and I am always shocked at the number of news items that seem cataclysmic. I mean, these things could take us down. This could be the end. Um, there's so many things that are just apocalyptic, it almost seems like. Weather, the wars, the Wall Street, and you name it. And so I think it's reasonable that um, what's happening is these uncertainties and these fears and anxieties bleed over into our life and we begin to just doubt. We just doubt um, what we know and what we believe and maybe even sometimes our worries start to bleed into these, you know, wonderful spiritual truths that we've held on to our entire life. I mean, will God take care of me? Will he? Will God take care of me if I'm hurting, if my life takes a sudden left turn? 
Um, am I really saved? Is God going to know me? Will he look at me and say, I never knew you? Um, am I secure in my faith? Why does sometimes faith have to seem so difficult? And so we have doubts. I have wrestled with doubts in my life, and I'm sure that you have as well. And here's the, here's the point. I mean, doubt is as common to mankind as sunsets are to the horizon. Every day is going to bring a sunset. We know that. Pretty much every day is going to bring some kind of doubt or some kind of uncertainty. You remember Pilate famously said, what is truth? Well, the question is, what is doubt? What is doubt? So let me try to define it for us today, to give you my um, attempt at defining doubt. Doubt is that gap between what we know for certain and what we wish we knew for certain. What we know objectively, perhaps through our senses, what we have seen or can see, or what we have touched. It's the gap between something that we know completely and something we only know in part. See, that gap between believing and knowing is where doubt can take root and begin to grow. And there's hesitation and wondering and confusion. It is the, the reality is that wherever there is faith, there's the possibility of doubt. Because faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Um, doubt, wavering questions. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. There is a mystery to our faith. There's a mystery to it. We don't know it all. We don't understand it all. John, in his gospel, said, no one has ever seen God. And yet here we are, a room filled with people, worshiping God, believing in God. All of our campuses, people are worshiping and believing in God. And yet, John says, no one has ever seen God. And yet we believe. Doubt is so common. It's not surprising then that almost every hero that we would look at in the Bible has struggled with doubt at some level. I'll just name off a few of them. Um, doubters in the Bible. Job obviously doubted God. He, had, he doubted the goodness and the justice of God. Abraham doubted that God would take care of him, of him and Sarah. He took matters into his own hands again and again. Moses doubted that God could use him with his own weaknesses. David doubted God. Elijah doubted God. Gideon, remember Gideon doubted God that, that God would give him and the Israelites the victory. And so God had to whittle that down to just 300 soldiers. John the Baptist doubted that Jesus was who he said he was and who John had previously believed that he was. And obviously Peter doubts that everything's going to turn out all right. So there are lots of doubters in the Bible. Today we're going to talk about another one of those folks, um, Thomas. And we commonly refer to Thomas as what? Thomas. Now, how in the world would you like it if 2,000 years from now they would be calling you Doubting Thomas? We wouldn't like it. Um, so we're going to talk about Thomas today. I think that Thomas is a very relatable guy. And I think we'll see that as we go on today. So we're going to take a look at 
this one-on-one conversation that Thomas has with Jesus. So let's begin, before we read the passage from John, let's, re, uh, let's begin by, by thinking about what do we know about Thomas? What do we know about the Apostle Thomas? So first of all, we know that he was called. Thomas was called. I mean, Jesus, in Luke chapter 6, when he goes uh, off to pray, he prays all night. And then the next day, he calls a number of his disciples, his apostles, his sent ones. So Thomas is called by Jesus to be a part of this band, this group of people that will leave everything that is secure in their lives, everything that, uh, that they know to follow this itinerant rabbi. He enters into a full-time apprenticeship with Jesus as his teacher. So Thomas is called. Then secondly, he is willing. Thomas is willing. In John chapter 11, Thomas says to all the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Those are powerful words. So you remember the story, um, Lazarus, who was a great friend to Jesus and a friend to the other apostles as well, has gotten sick and they've called for Jesus to help. And uh, Jesus is going to go back there. Jesus knows he's going to raise him from the dead. Um, So he's actually not even in a hurry. But the rest of the disciples, um, the last time Jesus was there in Bethany, they tried to stone him literally stone him to death. And so the disciples are thinking, if we go back there, he's going to die. And Thomas says, let's go too. We will die with him. So Thomas is willing. There's no doubt about it. Thirdly, Thomas is convinced. He is fully convinced. In John chapter 14, Jesus is teaching And he says these words that you're very familiar with, some of the most beautiful words in all of scripture. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place you know the way to the place where I am going. And in that moment, then Thomas says what is on everybody's mind, and particularly on his mind, he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? I mean, what Jesus, or what Thomas is really saying there is, wherever you're going, I want to be right there with you. Tell me where you're going. Tell us how to get there. We want to be with you. In other words, Thomas is saying, I don't have a plan B. I have no plan B. I want to be with you. Thomas is fully convinced. He's all in. And so Thomas is called. He was willing. He was convinced. And then he was not. And then he was not. And then he was not. And then he wasn't. Yeah. He was called. He was willing. He was convinced. And then he wasn't. So let's read the story. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. It says, 
On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, (coughs) excuse me, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. What a great story. Was Thomas' disbelief in the resurrection of Jesus, was it reasonable? Was it understandable? Can we understand where it came from? Let's take a look at a few of the facts. Jesus had made a total of 12 post-resurrection appearances, or he would make a total of 12 appearances. Now keep in mind that twice Jesus had told his disciples, the apostles, that he would be raised from the dead after three days. Twice he told them that. He's saying, look for it. He's predicting it. Expect it. It happens in Mark chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 17. So he's trying to prepare the disciples that this is going to happen. Don't be surprised. And the passage that we just read, among those 12 appearances, this is number five and number six. These appearances of Jesus after the resurrection. By now, Jesus had appeared to about 30 people who all believed that he was alive from the dead. And Jesus, like I said, would go on to make six more appearances. Now, the other disciples and the apostles that were gathered there with him, they are trying to passionately convince Thomas that Jesus is alive. If you look at the Greek flavor of the words, if you will, what it's saying is that they are passionately trying to tell him, Thomas, he's alive. It's like they're grabbing him by the shoulders and shaking him. Thomas, he's alive. I mean, they are fully convinced in what they've seen. But as we read, Thomas, he's having none of this. He's not going to have any of this. Thomas is without a doubt, he's just in a very, very bad place. Spiritually, I mean, for three years, he had heard the words of eternal life. He had seen the miracles of the kingdom of God. He was seeing this, this otherworldly um, life that, would, that had come from God and was being manifested by Jesus. He believed every word of Jesus. He believed every word. 
And look at where that had gotten him. It's like everything had just been ripped away from him and his soul was crushed. Spiritually, he's just in a bad place. Physically, I mean, think about what happened that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. All of the disciples, when they come to arrest Jesus, they flee. They run away from Jesus. And that begins, at least for Thomas, I believe, a three-day nightmare. I mean, how can he eat? How can he sleep when, I mean, he's just being tortured by Jesus' crucifixion and by what has happened there. His world has crumbled. Relationally, I mean, Thomas for three years was a part of this band of brothers, right? They had traveled throughout the entire country and the region every single day. They were his family. And the nucleus, the center of this family was Jesus. Now Jesus was gone and the band of brothers was scattered. He didn't know what was next. Socially, he just no longer fit into Jewish society. I mean, things had changed. He had changed. He had followed this teacher, this rabbi, who challenged his very own people and challenged the religious systems of the day. And now this teacher was labeled a heretic and a criminal by these same people. And so Thomas felt like the outcast. He felt very, very alone. And so he's depressed He's despondent, and he says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark, place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So Thomas is just in a bad, bad place. I can see that and feel that and sense that. I can't be that hard on Thomas. Thomas is is a good, good man, just in a bad place bad season. But what I really want to look at and pull out for you and encourage you with is the way that Jesus responds to Thomas. I mean, the lessons that we draw from that, uh, Jesus met him right where he was. He met him right where he was. I mean, in Thomas's despondence, he overreaches. He says those things. I think that if, if Thomas could take those words back, he probably would. They were just dripping with um, confusion and disappointment and aggravation. You can just feel sort of the torture that's happening inside of Thomas in that moment. I mean, you've been there, right? I've been there where I'm just reacting out of raw emotion and I end up saying things I wish I could take back. He's disappointed. And that's where Jesus meets him. I mean, look at this. Think about this. Thomas demands, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails. Put my finger into the place of the nails. Put my hand into his side. I will not believe. And look how Jesus answers him. The commands of Jesus, bring here your finger. See my hands? Bring your hand and put it into my side. No longer be unbelieving. But believe, Jesus gives Thomas the exact assurance that he needs. Word for word, idea for idea. That's how he responds to Thomas. In effect, what he's saying to Thomas is, hey, Thomas, look at me. 
Look at me. I'm Jesus. I'm the one they crucified. I'm the one who was dead. And now I'm alive. I, I'm your teacher. I'm your friend. Now I'm your savior. I'm alive. And then you can just see, you know, Thomas's spirit just breaks. I mean, I, I, I think he fell down and said, my God, my Lord, he just melts. And then in just a, a beautiful Jesus-y way, Jesus calls him to something better. We're not going to stay here, Thomas. Get up. We're not staying here. Don't disbelieve, Thomas. Just believe. It's so cool. I mean, we could end the service now, 13 minutes early, and uh, we could just say, hey, doubt is common to everybody. Doubt's common to everybody. You're not alone. I'm not alone. Doubts are a part of faith and a part of life. Jesus sees us in our doubts and wants to, wants to give us the assurance that we need. That's what he did for Thomas. I mean, he restored Peter on the shore of Galilee. He's restoring Thomas in this very moment. He wants to give us the assurance that we need. God is always calling us to a better way, to a way of trust. But let's try to go just a little bit deeper a little bit deeper, and try to understand Thomas's doubt. I mean, Thomas's doubt was genuine. It was genuine. Thomas is not a skeptic or a cynic or a rebel. I mean, skeptics reject a proposition because it doesn't measure up to their standard of believability or plausibility. Thomas was not a skeptic. I mean... He had traveled with Jesus for three years. Practically everything that he saw was implausible. And yet he believed it. He believed it. Everything Jesus did from a human perspective was implausible. Thomas believed. Thomas was not a skeptic. He also wasn't a cynic, right? You know what? You've met cynics. Cynics are driven by their own conclusions. And they're only interested in tearing down what somebody else believes. Cynics are malicious. Thomas was no cynic. And then Thomas, neither was he a rebel. Rebels, I mean, they just don't want to believe. They're not going to believe. They refuse to believe because believing would mean that they have to change the way that they think or the way that they live and they prefer their own way. They're, they rebel. Thomas was not a skeptic or a cynic or a rebel. Um, Thomas's doubt was sincere and it was genuine, which meant that it was the kind of doubt that Jesus could work with. Jesus can work with that kind of doubt. Like I said, just the way he restored Peter a few days later, he's going to work with Thomas in this moment and he's going to restore him. It's a, Thomas's doubt was something that he could work with. So that's a, a really important question I want to ask you today. The doubts that you may struggle with, maybe the doubts you're struggling with today, are they doubts that Jesus can work with? See, I think they are. They are if you hold them up to Jesus with open hands.
You know, you're not squeezing him, you know, trying to hold on to him, but you're giving those doubts to Jesus in an open hand. I think they are if through our doubt, we keep praying, we keep thinking, we keep asking, we keep trusting. I think Jesus can work with those kinds of doubts. If we stay humble, if we stay humble, we know our place. We don't accuse God the way that Job accused God. If we don't wander away the way Thomas seems to initially have done, he wandered away. Um, but rather, we stay with God. We stay with God's people. We stay with people that love us and care about us. See, Jesus can work with our doubts when we recognize that our Christian life is a journey. It's a journey. I mean, what we're uncertain about today, someday we're going to understand that. Someday, either in this life or the next, we're going to understand those things that don't make sense to us today. And the converse, though, is also true. Some of those things that we're absolutely certain about today, someday in this life or the next, we may be less certain about those things. Which is why one commentator said the four most important words for every Christian to be able to uh, utter is, I may be wrong. I may be wrong. See, our faith is built one day at a time as we zigzag, as we go up and down and around the corners of this life. And God builds our faith brick by brick. And that faith is organic and dynamic. But God cares about us in our doubt, as he certainly showed that he cared about Thomas. God cares about you in your doubt. He cares about you. He knows that doubt can lead to a stronger faith. Doubt can lead to a stronger faith. Like I said, if we push through it, if we continue to pray and we learn and we read and we grow and we research and we, we ask, you know, we can come through that doubt on the other side with a stronger faith, a more grounded faith. And that's a good thing. But we also know that doubt can lead to a weaker faith. It can, right? I mean, doubt can turn into unbelief, and Jesus warns about unbelief. Unbelief can become corrosive and toxic, and it can dominate other areas of our lives. It can actually multiply in our hearts. And then finally, doubt can shipwreck a faith. If left unattended for long enough, it can shipwreck a faith. Unbelief can draw us into isolation, seemingly like might would have been that first week's experience for Thomas. He was off by himself. Uh, we don't know why. Um, isolation, the enemy can just pick us off. Or it can become narcissistic, right? Doubt, unbelief turns in on itself and just what's, what I believe, what's important to me, what I'm going to defend. And it refuses any opportunity for faith or for trust. It can shipwreck a faith. So I believe that like Thomas, we have to choose to believe. We have to choose it. And here's a simple reason why. Because Jesus did. Jesus did. Jesus believed everything that he said. Jesus believed everything that he was saying. What he was doing. Jesus believed what he was calling you and me into 
this life of faith. And I don't say that glibly or as a cliche. You know, it sounds almost Sunday schoolish. There is simply no one worth trusting more than Jesus. No one more worth trusting than Jesus. You're going to trust someone, something, because we only know in part. Who are you going to trust? And there is no one more worth trusting than Jesus. Not your mom or your dad or you know, some university professor or your friends or the internet or all the influencers that you know, try to influence you. Jesus. There's no one who understands life better than Jesus. Jesus, you know, the, the marketing campaign is so popular now. Jesus gets us. He does get us. There's no one who's affected history or transformed more human lives than Jesus. There's simply no other source, no book, no guru, no worldview, no personal experience worth risking it all than Jesus. Someone has said that a Christian is a person who, with all the honesty of which he or she is capable, becomes convinced that the fact of Jesus Christ and his teachings is the most trustworthy source in the entire universe. Is that where you are today? I'm telling you, that's where I am. Jesus. From the very beginning of his life, people have been drawn to him. All kinds of people. Poor people, shepherds, satisfied people, successful people, messed up people, lepers and injured people, brilliant people, forgotten people, despised people, tax collectors, admired people, wealthy people, religious people. This man, Jesus, before whom our hearts melt. Jesus. And the beautiful thing about it is that Jesus doesn't demand that you understand everything about him. Just that you're willing to trust him. Are you willing to trust him? So today I want to close by looking at a very familiar passage to most of you. And it's an important passage, but you might scratch your head and say, why are we going there? It's, a, it's the passage that talks about the two purposes of the church, right? To preach the gospel and to teach people about Jesus, to make disciples. And it reveals to us that the gospel is for everybody. It reminds us that the head of the church is Jesus from whom all authority is given. Where are we going? The Great Commission. So turn in your Bibles or your devices and just read this short passage with me. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, we'll close from here. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus 
These are some of Jesus' last words before the ascension. I mean, his most uh, powerful, timelessly inspiring words. How many messages in 2,000 years have been preached from this one passage? Probably an innumerable number. So inspiring. But does it strike you how interesting it is that Matthew describes the reaction of the people this way? When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. But some doubted. Why? Why did they doubt? I mean, by this point, Jesus had appeared to over 500 of them, 500 people. He had shown himself alive, resurrected from the dead. Some of those people had grabbed a hold of his feet and his legs after he had come out of the tomb. Some of them had breakfast with him around a fire on the shores of Galilee. Some of them had even touched the holes in his nail and the the hole in his side with their own hands. This wasn't a hallucination. Jesus is real. They could see him standing there in front of them. But some doubted. But some doubted. I think it's equally fascinating that Matthew doesn't say that that upset Jesus. Doesn't say that he rebuked the doubters. It doesn't say that he separated the doubters from the believers, like, you know, the story of the sheep and the goats. Doesn't say that he sends all the convinced and tells the doubters, you stay here behind. Both the doubters and the convinced were with him on the mountain. Both doubters and believers heard these gracious words. Both doubters and the convinced were given the great commission. You see, doubt does not disqualify you. It doesn't disqualify me. I mean, like like the first disciples, you and I have been called into a story that's bigger than any one of us. It's bigger than any of our doubts or our uncertainties. It's bigger. You were created to know him. Your heart beats for him. Inside, he is who you long for. And every one of us, those of us who are fully convinced and those of us even with doubts, are invited to participate. We're a part of the family. Jesus welcomes both. Both are called, both are sent, and both are vital to the kingdom of God. So my encouragement for you today is that no matter where you are on this continuum of faith, whether you're fully convinced or whether you're just hanging on by a thread, Jesus loves you. You're called. You're sent. He cares for you. And so that's the good news of Jesus' conversation with Thomas. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this uh, great reminder that we don't have to have it all together. We don't have to have every um, doubt crucified and put to death. There are things that we still struggle with. We're not sure about. We don't understand But Lord, help us to hold those things before you with an open hand, knowing that you love us, you understand us, you get us, and that is good, good news. Just as you 
um, wanted to um, arrest every doubt in Thomas's heart, you want to do the same for us. You walk with us day by day. Our life is a story that's still being written. And so we thank you for that. Encourage our hearts today. Maybe even from this message, we might encourage someone else. And so we bless you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.